Hey, I'm Brett, and this is Aditi. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And shrimp. We love our shrimp. Welcome to the show, everyone. Now, when you are looking at companies to invest in, Brett and Steph, do you guys ever feel torn between making a high return versus investing in a high-minded mission? No, I don't. Is it all about mission for you guys? Nope. Other way around. Okay. It's, um, it's all about it, money for you guys. I mean, it has to start with returns, right? The type of fund that we have, we pitch that we are going to provide outsized financial returns for our investors. That being said, one of the really cool parts about being an investor in the food tech space is that the vast majority of the companies that we invest in are mission-driven, and that makes it really special. And that's one of the reasons that we invest in the space is that because it's you can have both. They are not mutually exclusive. You can build a great company with great financial returns and also be mission-driven in a variety of different ways. So you can build a huge... like I always like to say, who has more power to change the world? A nonprofit that's helping reduce food waste somewhere or Amazon? Amazon has way more ability to do something like that. Steph, it seems like from a branding perspective too, that it's so much more fun to tell that story when there is that mission part of it. I think it's interesting when you talk about mission, because I think all of our companies have some sort of lofty, lofty, big moonshot mission, right? That's why we're investing in them. And then thinking through the impacts they're going to have adds another layer and helps us speak to what they're doing to change the world from the other sector that we invest in alongside food and ag tech and enterprise SaaS is health tech. And so you see a ton of health tech that changes the world as well. And it's probably easier to tell their story more effectively when you have that component of it. I mean, I think so. And I think some of what comes with that often is passion from the founders. And whenever you have that and you have a personal connection for the founders to tell their story, like we'll hear from Lindsay in a bit, Mm -hmm. it becomes so much more compelling. Well, that brings us to the question of this show. And it seems like you've already answered that. But can you do good and make money at the same time? Our guest today thinks you can. Her name is Lindsay Hole, and she was such a fun guest. She has worked in cardiac surgery. She's a major surfer. And that led her on a mission to rid the world's oceans of plastics. Her company, Dispatch Goods, works with restaurants to help them reduce their waste. And you guys invested in her as well. We did. They are a phenomenal founding team. When you meet Lindsay and Maya, Sunil and the rest of the team, they are just tremendous to work with. They are passionate. They are going to change the world. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, it'll be a fun interview to listen to. But first, a look at some hot topics trending in food and innovation. The Real Good Food Company has filed for an $86 million IPO. This is a Cherry Hill, New Jersey-based company, which aims to make low-carb, high-protein packaged foods. I know we've been talking about companies finding innovative ways to make low-carb foods, but Brett, is it surprising to you that a company like this didn't just get gobbled up by a big food company? A little bit. It is the normal path, I'd say, for CPG. You don't see a lot of consumer packaged good IPOs. Most of the time, they are acquired. The protein space has been so hot recently. You know, Jack Links has been crushing it. For example, like beef jerky companies, because they're just so protein focused and not carb focused. And it is a little bit surprising that one of the big CPG companies that might not have as many protein focused snacks didn't come in and take them out. Do you think it has anything to do with the kind of proliferation of SPACs recently that we're seeing more of these companies that might have been gobbled up? 
IPO? It could be. It's also a relatively small IPO, right? Sub $100 million IPO. So it, it could just be a way for them to raise capital because it's also hard to raise late stage rounds of capital in the CPG space. And so there's the potential that they're using this as a way to raise capital to potentially get acquired, right? There's no reason they couldn't get acquired alpha public market in you know, a year, two years or three years. Speaking of big CPG companies, the maker of Nestle breakfast cereals is removing nearly 60 million teaspoons of sugar and 3 million teaspoons of salt from its products in an effort to improve their nutritional profile. By the end of this year, this means that there will be up to 16 percent less sugar and 50 percent less salt across Cocoa Shreddies, Frosted Shreddies, Honey Cheerios, Nesquik, Cookie Crisp and Golden Nuggets. You did a great job reading those names, did you? <laughs> no problem. You think, hey, do you think this is a smart move with the times, or or could it be like a new Coke kind of moment? I really like that they put it in teaspoons. They didn't say like pound. Like they decided to go with like the smallest units, so they could say three million of them. Right? We're gonna just remove three million teaspoons. A teaspoon is not that big. We talked a little bit about new ways to make sugar on a prior episode, which. Are they going to be replacing it with anything? There's this thing where big CPG companies are always looking at ways to change ingredients, remove ingredients without changing the taste of the product. And that's the key, right? Like haven't you had like favorite CPG items, like legacy things that you'd had from childhood that they just ruined because they tried to make them more nutritious? I would actually argue that they're not trying to make it more nutritious. They're actually trying to make it less expensive for them to manufacture. And so even in this case, Taking sugar out of a product, uh, sugar is probably going to remove cost from the product. And so you can certainly frame it as we're going to make it healthier for you, but it's also going to be less expensive unless they replace it with something else like an artificial sweetener or a natural sweetener that might not have as many calories. And so it'll be interesting to see if they replace it or if they're just kind of managing their margins a little bit here and taking products out and then spinning it. You know, I remember eating things when I was a kid and you eat them now, you're like, well, that doesn't taste anything like what I remember. And it's because slowly over time changed the, the formula, how they make it. And it just isn't the same anymore. But maybe that's just me being an old grouch that says, oh, I wish things were the way it was when I was, you know, when I was 10. Pizza rolls, they taste different than they did when I was a kid. And then I'm thinking, am I going crazy? Is it in my head? But my husband thinks so, too. So who knows? Bagel bites. Yeah. They also change mm. packaging, too. Like packaging gets changed all the time. Like how do you take a penny or a half a penny or a tenth of a penny out of a package? And when you make a billion of them every year, that's a lot of money. A tenth of a penny is a lot of money to put back into your bottom line. Fascinating. Well, Boston-based Slate, which makes a healthier version of chocolate milk, has just closed $3.3 million, so it's a small amount. That's an extended seed round following its earlier $1.7 million fundraise in late 2020. Now, this startup was dunked by the crew on Shark Tank. They didn't like the taste, but the company's products have been hot sellers. Sales have been growing 300% from 2020 to 2021 more than 60% of which came from e-commerce, which makes sense because of the pandemic. After spending a year in reformulation, Slate launched its first commercial product made with 17 grams of protein, 9 grams of added sugar, and 130 calories per can, and sweetened it with a combination of cane sugar and monk fruit. Do you guys think that there's a long-term market for healthful chocolate milk? The old monk fruit-flavored chocolate milk. I feel like chocolate milk has kind of had a rebirth in a fitness perspective, like seen mm-hmm. as a, a great kind of after-workout protein drink. Given all that we found out about milk and the differing opinions of it that we kind of seem to go back and forth on as a society, who knows? My mother-in-law drinks chocolate milk for breakfast every morning. Like, because she doesn't have coffee. She has chocolate milk. 
That's a great substitute. I mean, I but I like like my Nestle quick milk or Hershey's or something. I mean, don't mess with chocolate milk. It's interesting, right? Like even from the last story, the reduction of sugar, the new way to do chocolate milk that's healthier for you. And so certainly I think in both of these cases, for either one of them to be successful, the product has to taste great and has to have great flavor and really be delicious. Sweet. Well, coming up, Lindsay Hole on how surfing led her down an entrepreneurial journey. When you hear about Lindsay Hole's life journey, there's almost a Forrest Gump-like quality to it. Lindsay is the founder of Dispatch Goods, which aims to make the oceans cleaner by getting restaurants and their customers to switch to reusable packaging. Lindsay's sharp, opinionated, inquisitive, and action-oriented. And throughout her life, her varied interests have landed her in extraordinary circumstances, from helping to save lives as a cardiac nurse to riding the waves as an avid surfer, and eventually trying to rid the oceans of plastics and pollutants with her entrepreneurial pursuits. While it would be impossible to sum up Lindsay with any pat label, somehow all the puzzle pieces fit together, starting from her childhood near Columbus, Ohio. There, the daughter of two elementary school teachers grew up loving school, especially science, and caught the entrepreneurial bug early on when a personal pain point with pasta led her to a brush with fame. I guess <laughs> the the first uh, inclination that I was maybe entrepreneurial minded was that I was a kid inventor on the David Letterman show. And I, <laughs> when I was in sixth grade, there's like a contest at school for the invention convention. And I created like a really stupid way to eat spaghetti, but like I never could get spaghetti to twirl on my fork. So I thought this was a problem that everyone had. I don't think that's the case. So slippery. And like that's when you're a kid, it's really hard. That's slippery spaghetti. <laughs> yeah. Maybe because I like just ate mine with butter. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't know. Like, if you're gonna make something slippery, <laughs> let's put some more grease on yeah. it. <laughs> um so I made this like I took like tongs and this eggshell and then it would basically cut and put the spaghetti in the egg, and then I had this trough that it would slide down into your mouth. I mean, it was so ridiculous, but my teacher <laughs> sent it to the David Letterman show. And like a couple months later, I got a call that they wanted me to fly out and audition with like 10 other kids to be on the show. And then I auditioned and I it was really a whirlwind. I didn't know that we were sitting here with the inventor of the spaghetti straw. I mean, yeah, it's my claim to fame. It was definitely I was a Pickerington celebrity at that time in my life. Like it was a really, really big deal. Did that set you on the path that <laughs> you're on right now? Uh, no, I mean, I maybe, but I would say like when I realized that I liked to kind of find maybe not easier ways to make money, but more efficient was when I started babysitting when I was in high school and I was like, I'm making $4 an hour. This is horrible. But then the cleaning ladies that would come and clean my parents' house, they were making like $50 for two hours. I was like, I should start a cleaning service. So my sister and I started a cleaning service in Pickerington uh, when I was in high school in order to make more money than we would babysitting. And so I worked other jobs too, but during the summers, like we kind of, we did well running a little cleaning biz in in the Pickerington suburbs. How much money did you earn that summer? Oh, I don't remember, but it was, it was like $50 for two hours of work and most of them would let us eat for free. So like we'd go into their freezers and see like how much ice cream they'd have. And we, <laughs> it's like a really great perks of the oh, job. <laughs> I had low expectations at that point. 
But yeah, it was really, I, I would say that like I more like understood this draw I had to starting a company when I was in my 20s. I had started surfing and that was my life. I was, I worked in cardiac surgery, but I got like six to eight weeks off a year. And so I just would go on surf trips. A lot of times I was the only girl surfing and all the guys had board shorts with pockets and they would be able to put their key in their credit card or beer money in their pockets. And I was always having to bury my stuff in the sand because I didn't have a pocket in my bikini when I was in warm weather places. And so I was like, we really need to have better women's like surfwear that are more functional. So I started a company called Kind of Fancy. It was a surfwear company. We basically had better bikinis that stayed on when you're surfing, but they all had pockets so that you had a place to put your key and your beer money. My siblings and I ran that for like three and a half years. We did like 50K a year in revenue. It wasn't like a like an enormous success. The biggest thing I learned was about market size um, because our market was very specific. I was like, I want to appeal to women surfers that have urban style. And there's like 20 of them. <laughs> there's, like none of them. there's like not that many. The two most important things, beer money and keys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were in like every surf shop in like Northern California, but it just, we like sold $700 worth of product a year. It, there's just not that big of a market. But the need for those few who did have that need was probably really great. Yeah. I mean, I definitely built the product for myself and then just found other women that had this problem. Yeah, there was some. Not enough, though. But it was a really like I, I loved building a brand and a product and just taking like creating something from nothing. I got super addicted to it. And I started to think about like, yeah, what's the next stage of my life going to look like? And then did dispatch goods come from that? So I at that same time got a job offer in Hawaii and I was the chief perfusionist at a hospital there. So I got a job in Hawaii. And so I was selling bikinis and I started selling them to shops in Hawaii. Here you are out there and surfing and being kind of one with the water and all that stuff. But then you have this very type A, you know, driven kind of job during the day. People think that surfing is relaxing. That has not been my experience. I like surfing because it feels life threatening a lot and it makes me not able to focus on anything besides not dying. I like that adrenaline. And so I think that they're actually more similar than you think. And I like the intensity of both of them. But what I love about the startup culture versus cardiac surgery is in cardiac surgery, if you want to change your practice, there's like a lot of approvals you need in order to even just like test if this is the right concentration of drug or these are truly the best practices. And so you couldn't make changes quickly and learn and get better. It was like, this is what has been published and this is what we need to act on. When I started with kind of fancy the bikini company, like the amount of data and feedback we could get and then rap make rapid changes was so exciting by contrast to cardiac surgery that I was a lot more drawn to that ability to kind of rapid prototype and, and test things. What led you to start Dispatch Goods? So yeah, really, I Dispatch was a few years later. What I first wanted to do is just get involved in creating awareness about the plastic pollution problem. I had thought that beach cleanups were to clean up litter. I thought that people were dumping stuff on the beach and that's what we were going to clean up. That's not the case. It's what's churning in our oceans and like washing up on our shores. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrifying. My husband and I were hiking to this kind of remote break on Kauai and we turned the corner and we get down and we see the sand. It looks like it's rainbow colored and we picked it up and it was microplastics. His mom worked for Oceana. They were 
really active with Surfrider. So for for Christmas, he got me a Surfrider membership also so that I could make friends because we were new there. And I just fell in love with that community and the movement. And so about six months into volunteering, they were looking for someone to launch this pilot called Ocean Friendly Restaurants, which was a new program Surfrider was looking to test. And I raised my hand and that program just like grew like wildfire in Hawaii. Uh, It was a really cool kind of trifecta that happened. There was a lot of buy-in from the business community in that they wanted help shifting to more sustainable practices, but they didn't have the time or energy to research what the best practices were. So we kind of came in as consultants. And then there was like a lot of grassroots energy supporting those businesses, people that wanted to use their purchasing power for good. And so with that much kind of momentum, policy that had stagnated for 10 years started to pass, like the, the straw bands, plastic bag bands, and getting rid of styrofoam. With that, I was like, wow, this is what change looks like. This is how change happens. I was testifying at like the state Senate and state house in order to help pass the policies. But as the market shifted to more takeout and delivery, I saw that like the options we were offering restaurants were still various shades of garbage and a lot of them ending up landfilled. Do most of the microplastics in the world come from the the food industry? The statistic on that, I can't remember, but it's a high percentage. I don't know if it's over 50%. It's somewhere between like 30 and 60. It's a lot from not necessarily the restaurants, but like food packaging. It's an enormous amount of waste we're creating. And on average, the packaging that restaurant food comes in is used for 12 minutes and then never used again. So we're creating all these products that we're shipping all over the world that are thrown away in, in literally minutes. Can you educate us on how that plastic gets from restaurants into the water? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's not so in some places, there's a direct correlation. Like we would do beach cleanups actually close to restaurants, and we would see those restaurant containers on those beaches. What's more actually happening is they've done a study that there's like, I think, nine rivers that account for something like 70% of ocean plastics. And at first, you know, the talking points was like these rivers and waterways are not even in the U.S. What now they've realized is the U.S. was shipping so much of our waste to developing countries to recycle or to basically landfill, that it's actually our trash getting shipped to other countries. They're not properly disposing of it because there's just like heaps and heaps and heaps of our waste in other countries. And so a lot of it is entering the waterways in those developing countries and then like churning in our oceans. So the problem is really clear. How did you go about solving it? What I thought and still think is the missing piece is not necessarily the packaging itself. There needs to be improvements there, but a reverse logistics infrastructure. So the way I saw it is most places, well, not most, most places have at least two bins, a trash and a recycling bin. Increasingly, there's a third bin, which is a compost bin. And what we at Dispatch believe is that there needs to be a fourth bin, a bin that you can put items that don't need to be broken down and and remade or sent halfway across the world to be put into a landfill that we could just wash them and reuse them and then sell them back to businesses. And we call that the fourth bin. The fourth bin is basically, it's not the bin itself, it's the infrastructure that supports that. It's like the recycling infrastructure, but done more locally in order to enable reuse of products. So that like the products that we're throwing away don't all need to be thrown away. And what are some of the steps that you first took in order to build that business? 
So we knew that like local density was going to be really important. So we tried to identify businesses that would drive local density, which for us was restaurants. And that's what my co-founder Maya and I naturally had sold into in the past anyway. So it was a really easy starting point for us. Your co-founder also has a great background for this, right? When I met her, she was the West Coast Partnerships Lead at Caviar. And then after the acquisition at DoorDash, she was going through a lot of changes in her position. And she'd been kind of advising me in the early stages and just started showing up more and more to events as like my partner or friend. We kind of chatted about her joining full time. And so she joined in February, right before covid And so I was like, after COVID, I was like, oh, please, I don't want to lose Maya. Um, But luckily, she stayed through the ups and downs of 2020. She's been absolutely instrumental because she really understands. She has a lot of restaurant empathy. She understands what's going to be realistic for them. And I think that when we've seen other executions of this same problem, we have always felt like it's too much onus on both, honestly, the restaurant and the consumer. And our goal is to do the hard part so that it's easy and we can get widespread adoption. And that'll lower costs over time. And the hard part is physically getting those containers back and forth. It's a collection, sorting, processing, washing, and and then finding a secondary market for those products. How do you make that sustainable, right? How do you make that logistics and that infrastructure sustainable versus compostable goods or compostable packaging? Um, Is it actually a better solution? In almost every scenario. The one caveat is if you use a really thick material and you're not getting that many uses out of it. So there's like a break-even point with steel that, that we consider. But the same logistics are happening with compost and single use, only usually much further processing, a lot more miles driven, a lot more miles flown to get the products around. Ours are a lot more local. We always say it's not going to make economic sense or environmental sense for us to drive across town for one bowl. We, similar to recyclers, group neighborhoods by day. If your dispatch goods collection day is Monday, that's the only day you can get collection. You can't pick a different day. And it helps keep our costs low as well as keep our environmental footprint low. So are your partnerships then with the restaurants and not necessarily directly with the consumers? So we've been generally B2B2C. So we sell into businesses, basically products that we own or products that we're upcycling. And then the products are labeled with return instructions. A customer scans a QR code and schedules collection. And we come and do collection. What else are you driving outside of? Is it all just bowls? I mean, like, or what, what other things are you doing? Steel containers. That's the stuff we own. We do mason jars. So we'll collect mason jars and wash them and resell them. So if I'm a consumer and I'm getting delivery, I can opt in. For instance, if I'm getting DoorDash with a business that you're working with, then I can opt into, yes, I want something from Dispatch Goods so I can return that to you guys eventually. Yeah. So that's how it started. Um, We made it opt-in and it costs more and we call it the avocado upcharge because we know, I I would say, our target customer pretty well. So we're like, if we're in that oat milk range, we should be able to capture that same customer segment. But restaurants over time, it's been a very taxing year in the industry. And so operational inefficiencies are difficult sale to make. And so we had a couple of restaurants that after they worked with us or even before said, I just want to replace all of my packaging with yours. And we're like, that seems risky. Are we going to get any of these back? Because our hypothesis was that people that opted in cared enough to return it. But if you give it to everyone, is everyone going to just be like, I don't care. I'm going to just throw this away. But what we found was we launched last December with our first restaurant that everything was going out in our containers. Our return rate was higher. That took us by surprise. It was a great surprise. That is pretty spectacular. 
And so what markets are you in right now? What are your plans for expansion? We're in the Bay Area. So San Francisco, Oakland, uh, Alameda, Berkeley, Mill Valley. We're going to be kind of growing out that circumference to more and more of Northern California over the next year. We're basically getting an, an understanding of how like large of a radius one dishwashing hub can service before we build out a secondary one. As someone who lives in the Bay Area, I can see how there are consumers here who are going to be more willing to take part in this, right, and do their part. Do you think that would be the same case in other parts of the country? We get this question a lot, and all of my team is from somewhere else, so I feel like we exist everywhere. I'm from Pickerington. My aunt and uncle in West Virginia bring their own containers when they're getting their to-go margaritas. Wait, where's the to-go margarita? <laughs> yeah, in West Virginia. They just bring actually like an old, uh, like the sweet tea plastic and get it filled up at their local Mexican restaurant, which I love so much. How do you guys make money? We charge the businesses. So we uh, sell product they buy from us just like they would buy from their single-use product provider. And some of the restaurants still pass the cost on to the customer with that avocado upcharge. But largely, our revenue is driven from businesses. Basically, we we want to be seen and perceived as just a different packaging choice. That if you're picking between aluminum, compostables, and plastics, now dispatch is the other option and, and hopefully the best, most delightful, best environmentally, best business decision option you can make. What's your ultimate goal? So we want to build a reverse logistics infrastructure that's robust enough that businesses can know that they can retrieve their packaging in a reliable way, meaning that we can influence packaging decisions. So when Panera or McDonald's or Coca-Cola is deciding what packaging to use, they can know that dispatch goods can do the collection, sorting, processing, and then the return of those items back to them reliably so that they can get 70, 80, 90% of their packaging back. We're going to start you off easy with an easy question. Better beaches, Hawaii or California? One word answers. California. Wrong. It's Florida. <laughs> All right. The fourth bin is going to be a reality and widely adopted within the next five years. True or false? True. A more intense environment. Startups or a surgery room? Surgery room. What is the best dish currently served in a dispatch goods bowl? Spaghetti. And then you take the, 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 the spaghetti spoon trough to go eat with it. That's a great. Last one. What is the scariest animal in the ocean? Jellyfish. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Anish, co-founder, CEO of Knit. Anish, at Knit, what problem are you solving? At Knit, we are solving the problem of brands talking to their customers. Today, talking to your customer is an extremely painful problem. If you're a brand and you want to chat with your customers, you have to recruit an audience, uh, you have to conduct focus groups or interviews, and then you have to analyze those conversations. And every one hour of conversation takes up to 10 hours to analyze. So just to talk to like eight or nine customers, they can take four to six weeks, cost upwards of $10,000. And that's incredibly painful and slow in today's agile world. And that's what we're solving here. That's cool. How are you solving it? 
Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, there's three major aspects, right? Recruiting that customer. So we've built out a network of 60,000 plus customers that brands can tap into to gather feedback from. The second is actually gathering that feedback. So instead of having these interviews, you just upload your questions and customers can respond to your questions with the video and then actually analyzing that in conversation. So we've built really neat technology that helps you analyze these conversations, pulls out key themes, key insights, making it up to five times faster to analyze these conversations that you're having. What kind of like a brand is has this struggle? Just give us an example. It could be a customer or not, but like what kind of brand is it? Typically, we're seeing mid-market to enterprise customers, right? These are ones that are trying to reach an audience of consumers that they might not have easy or instant access to. So for example, CPG brands that are selling through retail. Like Red Baron Pizza. Yeah, Red Baron Pizza, Nestle, General Mills, S.C. Johnson, any of the major CPG brands that are trying to talk to their customers. Got it. And CPG, for those that don't know, is uh, consumer packaged goods. How are you going to take over the world? What's the big vision here? Our big vision here is to really help brands analyze video feedback instantly. Today, that takes about 10 hours for every one hour of video data they have. And something like 82% of internet traffic next year is going to be over video. You know, in the next three to four years, we think that everything you're doing on the internet today will be through video. Anytime one or more people are talking together through video on the internet will be the platform that's helping brands analyze that. That's cool. So you could tell if I was actually interested in what you were just telling me or not using video uh, analytics, huh? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I'll run it on our platform right after this and let you know. Today, I'm here with Mark, CEO and co-founder of Haya Bioplastics. Mark, what problem are you solving? Yes, so we are solving actually two problems. One is the problem that we have all interfaced with, which is the problem of plastic pollution. Plastic pollution is a global problem, but its impact in the developing world is much more devastating because of very low recycling rates. So we are coming in with a solution which is our biodegradable food packaging material that unlike plastic can degrade in 30 days. Plastic gets to live with us for about 400 million years after its date of uh, manufacturing. So we are coming in with a solution that's going to make this much more effective. Two is one commonly talked about problem across Africa and developing countries, which is agriculture waste. So agriculture waste like sugarcane burgers, banana stems, usually gets disposed of by farmers and this is actually them losing so much value but creating another problem which is uh, the greenhouse gas emissions that are caused by them burning this waste. So we are coming in, buying this waste from them and transforming it into high value packaging. How are you solving this problem? And if it's not clear to everybody out there, tell them where you're based, Mark. Yes, so we are based out of Uganda. Some people call it Uganda, but same place here in Africa. And um, (laughs) how we are solving this problem is by creating biodegradable food packaging. And how we are creating it is in an interesting way. We are using cassava or what we would call tapioca in some areas. We combine this with fibers from different, I would say, sources of fibrous materials like pulp, wood pulp, banana stems, sugarcane bagasse to make our biodegradable food packaging. Our process is proprietary and the way we have developed it makes it the lowest cost way to make biodegradable food packaging currently across the globe. And this hits one of the key pain points which has been cost, especially with regard to biodegradable packaging alternatives. 
Got it. And what's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? Yes. Uh, so definitely taking over the world is a step-by-step process. And how we are doing this is by preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel through action. And action, how we're going to do this is by first off ensuring that the whole of Uganda is switched on to sustainable packaging alternatives. So from Uganda, it will be easy to integrate and sell our products across the East African region, which is a region that has a population of more than 200 million people. This population, once they become believers, we believe this technology will now become scalable across areas in Africa, Southeast Asia, and also many parts of South America. So going back to our original question, can you do good and make money at the same time? Yes, right? Heck yeah, of course you can. I mean, it's like we said at the top of the at the top of the episode. I mean, the companies that are the biggest have the most potential to change the world. They have more power, they have more influence, and there's nothing better than working with founders that have the ability to build something great and, and do good at the same time. Awesome. Well, that's a good way to end it. We're doing good. Maybe not making as much money, but. <laughs> I think at the end of another one, we had a conversation around Girl Scout cookies. Thin mints are superior to Samoa's. No way. We teased that like three episodes ago and we forgot to bring it up. So let's finish that conversation now, I think. Our listeners are, are wanting to know the answer here. Frozen Thin Mint? No. It's one of those no. ones that I think has changed their recipe and it's not quite as good as I remember it. I'm just saying, Girl Scouts, you might want to change it back. I'm trying to remember they had a couple of new flavors last time, but nothing beats the Samoas. They're so good. And I like the ice cream with it too. Like the Samoas ice cream made by dryers, which I know is like Edie's where you guys are, but it's dryers. Talk about a business model. Like, you know, the, the whole Girl Scout cookie business model is brilliant. Let's have them on. We need to have them on because they know how to innovate, don't they? <laughs> I don't know if they know how to innovate, but they definitely know how to build a pyramid scheme. <laughs> well, they, they market pretty well, right, Steph? <laughs> Oh, genius. Viral networking. How do you say no to a Girl Scout when, when she wants you to buy some cookies? You can't. It's impossible. We always have lots of Girl Scout cookies. We always have a ton of popcorn from my nephew. The Boy Scout popcorn? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a sucker for kids trying to sling stuff. The part that I run into trouble with is like when the parents start selling, I'm like, oh, man, like I'll buy it oh. if you send your kid to sell it to me. I want them to do the work, though. Maybe that's just, uh, maybe I'm being too mean and grouchy again. I used to have to go, when I was a kid, I used to have to go door to door in the hot Florida sun and sell candy bars to my neighbors. Brett's going to have 100 kids outside his door when he opens it next. Come on down. I, I stop at every lemonade stand, no doubt. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. See you later. <laughs>